I do want to start with this story. You know I love stories. This is actually a modern parable. It was written by a man named Theodore Wydell. I know nothing about Theodore Wydell other than he wrote this parable. I do know where I first heard this parable, however. Did you have Dr. Cheekies? What's that? <laughs> Tibor Cheekies. Well, early in my seminary career, and, and for Dennis, we had Dr. Cheekies in one of the psychology of religion type courses. And one of the first days... We got our textbook, the book we needed for that, took it to, to class, and he opened it, and there at the very beginning of this psychology uh, textbook was this parable. And Dr. Cheeky's read it to us early on in that course study, and I don't care whether you listen to it, well, yeah, I do care, after the parable's over, but boy, just hear all the symbolism and the beauty of this. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give up their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully furnished it exquisitely because they used it as a sort of club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving stations, so they hired lifeboat crews to do that work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decoration. There was even a liturgical lifeboat in the room where club initiations were held. But about that time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast and the hired crew brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. Some of them had black skin and some had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where the victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down 
and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And so they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in the waters, but most of the people drowned. The church has life-saving station. That's what we are. Now, you have to understand that as a pastor over the years, I have struggled with what pastors are supposed to be able to do and be. I was a pretty good handholder. By that, I mean when people hurt. The people of the congregations I have served over the years knew that I really did care about them. But I wasn't much of a visionary. My vision for the, but I used to go to these seminars, Pastor Hummel and I, continuing education events. And one of the things that early on they seemed to ask a lot was, where do you want to be in five years, 10 years? Where do you want the church you're serving? I could never answer that. I just wanted to be above ground in five years. I just wanted the churches I was serving to be working to, to still exist. I was never one who could lay out this glorious visionary plan for the churches I served. But please understand that I do have some dreams about what the church should be as a life-saving station. I dream about a church where Christian love is present now. That may seem so obvious and so easy, but it's not, not really. Snoopy, in the Peanuts cartoon, has a cat living next door. And once in a while, that cat will attack Snoopy's doghouse. I don't know if you recall ever seeing those Peanuts cartoons. But one of the days, it's during Be Kind to Animals Week, and Snoopy expects the best treatment during that week. But one day Linus is speaking to Snoopy and Linus says, in regard to be kind to animals week, I have a question. You animals expect to be treated a little nicer by people this week, right? Well, does that mean that you in turn are going to make an extra effort to be more kind to that cat who lives next door? To which Snoopy, Snoopy thinks, I hate questions like that. <laughs> yeah, we do. Most of us hate questions that put responsibility on us. The church should be a place where Christian love is present. A place where differences are accepted and people are loved in spite of those differences. You know, it's easy to talk about Christian love with all the people that treat you nice, and that you agree with. But what about when you disagree with them? Is it still possible to love? I have a book on my shelves in my little office, Great Church Fights is the title of it. 
And one of the chapters is about the disagreement that arose between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. It's in the, the book of Acts. And John Mark had been on a missionary venture with him, and he left. It got to be too much for him. Paul and Barnabas now are about to go on another missionary journey. And John Mark wants to go along. Paul says, no, you failed us once. We can't take the chance that you'll do it again. Barnabas, on the other hand, wants to give John Mark another chance. Now, point is, both of those men, godly men, had opposing views. Each side had some valid points. But I have always wondered, because the Bible's not real specific about how they parted. I mean, that's what happened. John, Paul joins, joins up with Silas, and he goes his own way, and Barnabas goes his own way. But I wonder how they parted. That's important to me, to know. I wish I, one of those questions we'll ask someday. How did Paul and Barnabas part? Was it, okay, you go your way, I'll go mine, it's okay. Or was there anger involved in it? I hope not. Because disagreements are always going to be present. We can't always agree about everything. The church needs to be a place where people find strength because they are accepted, forgiven, and loved. I read three instances. One about a young man who had failed on his job severely. Depression set in. He had even tried to commit suicide. And then he found the fellowship of a church. And here's what he said. I literally felt their strength come into my body giving me new courage. It was the turning point of my life. Or a young woman who had always felt the pressure to excel. She was good at most everything she did. But she needed to know that she was accepted even when she failed. That she was loved unconditionally. See, the church of my dreams has a Christian love which gives new strength to others. When we are doing that, then we are the church. We're not just an institution. We're not just a building. There can be a church building with people in it, with officers in positions of leadership, with money to pay all the bills. But if they really aren't a church, unless there is Christian love among them. And it is possible. John Wesley and George Whitefield were good friends early on in each of their respective ministries. But there got to be some pretty serious theological divide, divisions between Wesley and Whitefield. When George died, John Wesley was asked if he thought he would see his opposing person in heaven. You know what Wesley said? No. He'll be so near the throne of God that men like me will never even get a glimpse of him. Though differing, these men did not lose their sense of oneness in Christ. That's what I'm talking about. The church of my dreams 
really does love each other. Not only when they agree and feel good about each other, but even when they disagree. The church of my dreams realizes that they are called by God. Think of all the little words, little significant words that Jesus used, like come or follow or do. They are all action words. There's an old contemporary song. What would Jesus say? And its words are just this. What would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? Where would Jesus go? We've got to go there too. He wants us to love them, love them through me and you. We must be his voice. We must be his hands. We must show his heart so they understand. Brothers and sisters, we've got his work to do. It's a labor of love. See, the church of my dreams knows what it is to be called. And it knows what it is to be called for all of their life. All of their life. See, obviously the church has a gathered life. That's what we're doing today. We gather together in worship. You gather together at times for, for learning sessions, whether it be Sunday school or Bible studies. You, you gather together for business meetings where the business of the church must be done. You gather together sometimes just for fellowship, just to enjoy one another's company. That gathered life of the church is, is very important to, to gain and share the strength we need together time. We need accountability to each other. But the church also has a scattered life. Because if you think of the church only in terms of what you do when you're here, but the scattered life of the church means that you don't cease to be the church when you walk out these doors today. I dream of a church that remembers its scattered life. John Wesley's general rules simply state this. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can to all the people you can, <clears throat> as long as ever you can. <clears throat> Church of my dreams knows what it is to be called for all of their life, not just when, when we're together. And understand this. The Church of my dreams is honest in its message. I don't think much of TV evangelists or preachers who promise you great things if you will give a seed gift to their ministry. We do not promise that Christianity is trouble-free. There will be difficulties in your life even after Christ becomes a part of it. Let's not turn people away from God by telling them that their troubles are all over. The Bible does not guarantee a trouble-free life. John 16, we find the words, Here on this earth you will have trials and sorrows, but cheer up, for I have overcome the world. We do have that assurance. We have the assurance that we use often in Romans 8, that all things work together for good for them who love God and are called according to his purpose. We want people to follow Christ, but 
I don't want to mislead them. Christianity's not trouble-free, and it's not easy. Oh, becoming a Christian's really easy. All you have to do is ask God to come into your life to forgive you. Zap, you're a Christian. It really is an easy thing. But living as a Christian, that's not easy. Few people find it easy to live a real committed Christian life. You see, living that kind of life is a cooperative effort between your will and God's power. And both of those things are necessary. Emerson Kolaw wrote a book called Beliefs of a United Methodist Christian. And in that he writes this, what is a Christian? Is a person a Christian simply by virtue of being a, not, not being a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Jew? Are they Christians simply because they live according to the golden rule? No, a Christian is someone who responds to the call of Christ. First and always, Christianity is a relationship to a person. Where Christ is, there is Christianity. And the Christian is a person who tries to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, many people view Christianity as a negative something which inhibits and represses. It takes the fun out of living, some say. But we assert that there is not a single thing in this whole world to which you are not entitled if it will do you good. Everything that is life-fulfilling is yours to enjoy. Jesus lived life from a great depth of being and with joy, and we are to live this way as well. See, I am not a visionary. I can't tell you where I want to be in five years. But I do dream of what the church is and should be. We are a life-saving station. But we must do that with love. We must do that with Christ as a part and guiding us in every step that we take. I don't want most of the people to drown. I want them to know that Yorkshire United Methodist Church is a place where they can find Christ and they can find acceptance and they can know that they are loved. As you know. Would you pray with me this day? Lord God, help us to be the church, to be the life-saving station you need us to be. We don't always agree about everything, but we do love one another. And we need to show that in all the things that we do, because people will see. We are the church, not just in these moments that we're gathered here, but even as this service ends, this worship experience ends, because then our service really begins. Help us in our scattered life as well. Amen. Would you stand with me as we close our worship?